Welcome to another Art of the Frame podcast on Pro Video Coalition. I'm your host, Scott Simmons. We are back to talking about reality and unscripted programming on this episode as I chat with two editors from the A&E show, Zombie House Flipping. I chat with Dan Wolfmeyer and Jeanette Christensen. And we talk about a number of things, including what lead editors on the show like this really do, differences in cutting styles between different types of reality shows, how to shift gears from different styles of cutting, and time constraints of cutting reality versus cutting documentaries. We also get into a lot of good technical talk, so you may be interested in that as well. I called Jeanette by the last name Mullins in the intro, and I apologize for that, as she goes by Jeanette Christensen, so I want to correct that right here, right now. Thanks for joining us. Please like and subscribe to the podcast, and let's get started. Hello, welcome to another Art of the Frame podcast on Pro Video Coalition. I'm your host, Scott Simmons, and I am talking to another group of folks about unscripted or reality post-production and editing. So we uh, we talked to folks from Lego Masters a few weeks ago. I kind of feel like unscripted and reality, whatever term you want to use, the post-production side may be a little bit underappreciated. We talk about feature films and, you know, high-end movies and Netflix shows all the time and stuff. But I, I think I think this is something that needs more discussion. So I'm happy to be sitting down with Jeanette Mullins and Dan Wolfmeyer, who they're both currently working on zombie house flipping which is indeed a TV show. And they've got other stuff in their background with documentaries. And we're going to talk a little bit about that. But a quick introduction, Jeanette, nice to chat with you. Uh, Let us know a little bit about your background and where you're coming from. Hi, thanks for having me on. I have been editing here actually in Los Angeles for 25 years. I started in commercials in Chicago and then early 90s and then realized that I didn't want to advertise for the rest of my life. So I moved out here made the big jump and fell into reality and haven't left. Very nice. Now, uh, commercial post-production with agencies, that is its own unique world. We talked a little bit about that a couple of weeks Mm -hmm. ago when I talked with uh, Chancellor Haynes, because he does a lot of agency and commercial stuff. But boy, I mean, that's its own dedicated discussion. We will have another time. Dan, what about you? What's your your history? Besides the fact that you and I have known each other for years on Twitter, but we've never actually seen each other in person. No, I, I haven't seen most people in person in the last two years anyway. So, well, good point. you know, it's normal. You're Amazon person. You see them walk up. That, that is true, <laughs> unfortunately. You know, I guess as far as I go, my background is I started off in local news in Phoenix in like the mid, late 90s. Got burned out on that after a few years and moved to California and decided that, you know, Hollywood is where I wanted to try to make a career for myself. So I ended up in docs and reality and I've been here since 2004, just freelancing that whole time. Very nice. It's uh, I think when someone can spend a lot of years as a freelancer, they're a very unique soul because it's not for everybody. There's a lot of stuff you can do wrong to make it very, very difficult. But at the same time, if you do it well and you enjoy it, there are some really great freedoms that come along with with being a freelancer. Jeanette, I assume you're a freelance as well. Is that have you always been uh, a freelancer once you um, got out to the LA? Uh, yeah, it's a unique situation in the industry is I'm technically staff on every show I'm on, but once the show is done, they cut me loose. So yeah, I've pretty much freelance the whole time. I've never been a, except for one, one instance, I've never really been a staff editor. 
So that's interesting. You say your staff on the show is, is, are you working for a post house sort of where you're kind of like air quotes, you're on staff for a post house there, or is the show, is there a company entity that you would sort of be working for during that, during that stint of time? It depends on the company. I think most production companies, sometimes they'll have like a subsidiary that's for that particular production, but generally you're hired by the post house and you work on that show for a specific length of time. And then if they've, at the end of that, if they've got another show they can roll you on to, then that's a wonderful benefit that can happen, but it doesn't always happen. I know Dan's been at Pilgrim doing exactly that for a number of years now. Yeah, I've been off and on on their shows for pretty much the last decade. So it's like Jeanette's saying, it's, you know, you're freelance, but I guess everyone throws the term permalance around out here too, where, you know, you're not really an employee of that company where you're going to get, you know, like a full benefits package or anything, but you're an employee of that company where you're paid through payroll and it's predictable schedules of pay. And if they can keep rolling you onto shows and they like you, they'll keep doing that. That's an uh, interesting dynamic because when you talk about, when you think about working for someone in any sort of somewhat permanent role, the idea of benefits, you know, 401k, uh, health insurance, which is a very large thing in this country, you know, that is something that freelancers, permalancers, just, we learn how to deal without you do it yourself. You either can do it or you can't do it in that, in that kind of case. But I would, I would guess that as far as unscripted post-production out there on the West Coast, is that kind of the norm? Would you say what you what you two have been doing for the last number of years? Very much. There used yeah, to be a lot of 1099 yeah. work when I first got here, but there was a whole thing with like FedEx and UPS drivers being misclassified and everyone panicked about 1099-ing anyone. So I remember this. I haven't had a 1099 job in years. Like everything went to through payroll companies and you basically, you're like a temp. And I would say I'm, uh, for those, you know, new to the podcast, I'm, I'm in Nashville and I've been a freelance editor for 20 plus years. And I would say probably, uh, this is the way this market is. It's 85% of my stuff is, is 1099. So it's just a different, different type of world, a different type of uh, a market. But now speaking of the world and the market, Dan, you mentioned documentaries. I would like to ask this question, and I'll throw this one out to you, Dan, because you mentioned it. Editing documentaries and editing unscripted stuff. Some people would say, oh, that's kind of one in the same. It's it's not, but it's much more similar than editing scripted versus uh, unscripted or scripted versus documentary. I'd love for you to speak a little bit in the sort of the parallels and even some of the major differences which you would consider between a true documentary edit or editor and those that are editing in unscripted. I mean, I think a lot of unscripted kind of falls into the, you know, the uh, soft scripted world where <laughs> things are kind of planned out. You might have an idea for something and you roll with it or, you know, manufactured after the fact with a little help from wild lines or something. But in, in docs, it's all, you know, it is, you have what you have and, you know, you, you tell a story with that. And I've worked on things where you know, there was an idea going into it and you follow, you know, your subject for however long you're going to follow them until you get your story. And you don't always end up staying with what you thought that original idea was going to be. You know, I've worked on very formatted things too, where 
you know, it's a historical doc. So, you know, the story going in because it's very well researched and it's just a matter of, you know, piecing together interviews with archival. Those are usually scripted out before the edit, you know, by a writer. But, you know, reality TV, it, it tends to be a lot of just what can we make work? <laughs> <laughs> what can what entertain somebody for yeah. 43 minutes plus commercials? Right. J- Jeanette, do you have a much of a background in, in straight up documentary editing? I've never cut a documentary. I've actually cut a feature film, but I haven't done doc. But going off of what Dan says, some of the shows that I've worked on, reality shows are very much in the documentary world, most notably intervention, because it's the same situation whereby you have what you have. And there's no pickups, there's no going back and asking them to do something over again. You know, the subjects are um, wildly erratic. And you might have an idea of where things are going to go, and it ends up taking a hard right and you're off somewhere else. So you have to use the material you've got to make something that's cohesive and coherent. And that can be really challenging at times. So I would say that's that's the closest I've ever gotten to any sort of real documentary filmmaking. Well, you both are working on uh, an FYI network show, Zombie House Flipping, which would be a home home repair, home rehab. I mean, that's its own unique genre of unscripted. So, mm-hmm. com- so let's compare that to intervention because I would definitely say intervention is much skews much more in the documentary world because you have a you have a subject who has a I would say you know issue a problem of a, a specific thing that you are concentrating on that subject to learn about if you will and you kind of have what you have in that person whereas a lot of the like a, re, a home rehab type show you the home is what it is but there's a whole lot of stuff that goes into making you know being able to twist all that around versus I'd say a person that you're concentrating on. So do you, have you found those two shows sort of wildly different in your approach or just, or just how you as an editor get into them? Well, stylistically they're worlds apart. I mean, zombie is very much more lighthearted and that shows in the music and the editing style and, you know, hitting the comedy beats and the personality beats of the four people who are doing the flips. They're similar in that with a home makeover show, like the show starts out with an initial walkthrough where the team walks through the house and says, oh my God, this is horrible. We got to change all this. Well, if you didn't pick, if the field didn't shoot something during that walkthrough and it comes down later that we really need this story point, you can't go back and pick it up because the first thing they do to the house is tear it all apart. I'd say that's the only thing that's similar. Dan, you worked on, uh, you spent a season or two or sometime on, I think, was it was it Wicked Tuna? So mm-hmm. I see that as being way, it's unscripted, but it's way different than what you get with uh, zombie house flipping, which again, sort of a DIY, I don't know if DIY is the right word, like a rehab show. How mm-hmm. would you compare those two as far as the, the approaches to telling the st- story? Is it kind of similar to what Jeanette was saying or did? Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, with zombie, it's a show that really doesn't take itself too seriously. It, you know, it's meant to be kind of a fun show i mean wicked tuna is very much you know man versus the elements you know you got someone who's fighting a fish for 
six hours or whatever. <laughs> and, and how do you condense that down to like, you know, what amounts to maybe seven minutes of screen time in an episode where four other people are also going to fight, you know, a fish for that long on their own boats. And it's also uh, a competition uh, in that, like, all of these boats are kind of competing to see who can bring in the most money in a season, who can, you know, catch the most, like, tonnage of fish. And zombies not like that. Every episode's a one-off. It is not, like, yes, they are flipping, in reality, multiple houses at the same time. That never plays in an episode because it's just, it's too hard to serialize a show like that. I think it would also be something where the network couldn't be like, hey, we just want to throw six random episodes on, but you don't want to be locked into airing them in a certain order. You know, Wicked Tuna is serialized. You can't watch them out of order and follow the competition at all. So so that's probably a different way that you have to, you know, potentially edit. And we'll, we'll get to sort of like the story producers and things like that in a bit. But I think if you're, if it seems like if you're working on a series where it is somewhat serialized or completely serialized, do you have a different sort of mindset as you dig into it than something that where each episode can be standalone? Yeah, I mean, they're both shows done by the same company, but under different executive producers. So the teams are broken down a little differently. But Wicked Tuna has a pretty big post crew compared to Zombie. I mean, we actually have a big crew on Zombie this season. In addition to Jeanette and I, there's four other editors. But on Tuna, I want to say there's usually like eight editors. And Everything is done in pods on that show. You know which episode it's going to go in. They're not like these free-floating pods that can end up in any episode because of the competition nature of it. But, you know, you do kind of want to constantly check in with your story producer because, say, you do need to, like, I don't know, they, they hooked up when a camera wasn't rolling and maybe you need something to happen. Like, well, what can you cheat? Because, you know... If a fish is caught on a shooting day, it's part of the competition, right? So you can't mm -hmm. cheat that for some other fish. Yeah, you could probably get away with like showing a different shot of a, a reel or something like that, something non-specific. It's fascinating how Unscripted has developed these sort of sub-genres where you have, the, you know, there's, mm. you mentioned the, the, the DIY house flipping sub-genre. There's the, you know, the intervention, my 600 pound life or the public health sub-genre. You've got competition cooking shows. You've got, uh, Jeanette, you worked on Survivor. You've got that type of, I'm in the outback in the wild type of survival show. There's so many of them that are the, like fishing reality show of, of catching living things out of the water, cutting giant forests down. Like that's its own genre of um, unscripted. <laughs> right. It's just, it's, it's, I don't know where I went with that either. That's quite, that fascinates me. Yeah, it has gotten very specialized. You know, it used to be when I started out in reality and I started out when reality was kind of starting out. And if you were a reality editor, you could cut any topic, any show. It just, they would, you would just pile onto something. But now when you get job notices through, it's must have paranormal experience, must have cooking oh, experience, home reno experience, must have Bravo experience. You know, the Bravo it's like, experience is, is often uh, controversy on some of the uh, oh, online yes. groups. I see people yes, talk about it. it's kind of funny. Everybody's got their little niche and showrunners, production companies are a little loath to hire outside of those niches sometimes. And, and it can be tricky, but 
storytelling is storytelling. It doesn't matter to me if it's a ghost or a house. I can tell a story about this happening to a person. But yeah, that's, that's something that's changed in reality. That's a good point because you are telling stories no matter what kind of story you are telling. But if if someone if they're asking for a specific Bravo experience, is that because they don't mm-hmm. want to have to train somebody on the nuances of dealing with, you know, notes and network and just, you know, specific workflows? Or do they really think that someone who has cut, you know, RuPaul's Drag Race can't get on and cut Wicked Tuna because because the sensibilities of the shows are so different? Is it, what is the the, the thinking? I, I think the response to that is, what is the thinking there? <laughs> <laughs> I think everybody that does the job knows that you know, for the most part, like a good editor can jump on to any kind of show and find yeah. their way. I think there's like schedules have gotten ridiculously tighter, and you know. Budgets keep shrinking, even though the companies that own these networks are making record profits. You know, budgets keep shrinking. And it's just a matter of like, we don't want to take the time to get some new person up to speed that can't jump in on day one and start cutting. I mean, I remember years ago, you'd start on a show and you weren't expected to have anything cut the first day, probably not even the first week. It's like, get used to the show, the footage, look at stuff, see what, you know, what's going on. Now it's like dive in day one, start cutting. I've been on shows where people want to see a cut at the end of the first day of a scene. Wow. It's like, <laughs> I spent half today filling out start paperwork. <laughs> cut something. But, I got to rebuild you know, my settings. Yeah, you got to rebuild yeah. your settings. You're not allowed to import settings anywhere. Oh, yeah. Imagine a world where editors can actually sit and watch their footage in real time and make notes on them. <laughs> yeah, what a wonderful amazing. world that it would almost, be. It almost never happens anymore. Well, I mean, well, that's kind of what the story producers do now. You know, the, and this is something that I've noticed over the last 10, 15 years. And it's it's kind of a shame is that now that Avid has moved into the story department and story is doing their own string outs. You know, they take the raw footage and they go through and they, they start to create the story by actually creating a sequence in Avid rather than putting it on. I started out with scripts, you know, you would get a script and the script would go to the assistant editor and the assistant editor would build the string out. And that's how people would learn how to edit. Mm-hmm. That's all with story now. And the AEs are left pretty much just being media jockeys you know they're they're importing they're grouping they're fussing with codecs and stuff that didn't even exist when i was an assistant editor and they're not really editing anymore you know which do you which do you prefer as an editor it's always easier to start with a sequence but are you telling the best story that as a storyteller do you sometimes think to yourself like boy if i could dig into all that raw footage i may have structured that Different, oh, or, I you, or, yeah, or wonder like well, wonder I what else there is there. That I always, I've always done that. Whether it came to me as a script, a paper script, or as a string out. If if I'm watching something and I get a question in my mind, it's like, wait, what happened there? Or is that really his real reaction? I always go back into the raw, and I'm I'm not at all afraid or shy about rebuilding something if I think there's a better way to do it, or if I think what I'm handed isn't working. But as far as Coming from story, I think it's helpful because then the story producers kind of really, really know what the footage is and what's in there and what's not there. Like our 
current showrunner on Zombie, he's actually doing some of our string outs. And so when I go to him and say, look, this cut is really difficult to make because I don't have the coverage I need, he doesn't fight me on it anymore. You know, he's like, well, you got to nice. find a way to make it work. He's like, no, I've been through the raw. I've seen they didn't shoot it. You know, so that's kind of helpful that the story people really know the footage rather than just writing up a paper script and then forgetting it. How much interaction do you guys have with the story producers? And, and are they open to you often coming back in those cases saying, hey, I don't have this or do, we, do I, I need this or this doesn't work for this reason? Or do they try to push it to you and say, all right, you've got what you got. Now, leave me alone. I've got another story. To-. I mean, on some shows, sure, it can be like that. I find on Zombie, it's not like that at all. The story producers we have... You know, this season and even the ones we had in the past, they're all very receptive to having constant dialogue about, you know, how can we make this work? They're open to any ideas that I have. You know, Mm -hmm. we do have, they do have to write things for the show. They are not offended at all if we have to rewrite something because we don't have enough coverage. Like, hey, I need this to be shorter. So I just, you know, I, I rewrote it so it'd be shorter. They don't get offended by that. I've been on shows where, like, you can't do that. (laughs) Story people (laughs) would get very offended. But ultimately, it's like you just want to make the best show you can make with what you have. So, you know, those battles are are pointless anyways. It's like everyone just needs to kind of get on the same page and and make the best show you can make. Are the... Are the story producers often on set, almost like a script supervisor watching along, or or are they, he or she, almost literally watching the footage from beginning to end in real time? Because you think about a show that generates a ton of media, and I'm thinking probably Zombie doesn't generate as much media as a Survivor or as a Wicked Tuna would, would generate. They're not on set, for sure, because okay. the show shoots in Orlando, and we're based in LA. Same thing with Tuna. It shoots on the East Coast and it's all here in LA. I assume they're watching it at high speed. I can't imagine that they even feel like (laughs) they have the time to watch it in real time, (laughs) but they do note the hell out of it. You know, there's locators all over the place with, you know, all kinds of descriptions that you can search to try to find stuff. I mean, that's, that's kind of the norm on like every show that I work on now at every company I'm at. Yeah. Would they would they be getting transcripts of I'm sure of like sit down interviews they do, but I wonder if on just some of the wild stuff if they get transcripts of that because I, I on documentaries I love to do transcripts of even stuff that seems like it's untranscribable because then you can really I don't know I've just find I found ways to find information in a transcript I don't feel like I would ever be able to find because you're right you don't have time to watch it in real time and even double time when you can't. You can't always hear stuff quite this quite the same way. So I wonder, I wonder how much transcripting is being done. We don't have any transcripting on zombie. Dan, is that correct? They, we don't I transcribe think, anything. I think they only transcribe the like the OTFs that are shot in the field mm. at the time, okay. and that's the only thing I think they transcribe. Yeah, uh, which, I, which I don't we don't know use. Why a lot. that is? Yeah, we don't use those a lot because. They're not always helpful. <laughs> Thanks for trying, but you know, you know. Yeah. maybe we need but, something way more specific. Right. Yeah. We usually have the field producer is the guy in the field and he will communicate, he or she will communicate to us, you know, what happened 
in the field, you know, they'll sometimes there'll be script notes, camera notes, and that information gets sent back to us and the story producer. But I've found traditionally that it's kind of not helpful for somebody to be knowledgeable in the field in the moment, because especially in reality, what you have on tape is what you have. And there's a phenomenon called field vision where the people in the room, in the moment will say, oh man, this is the most powerful moment. It's going to be amazing. (laughs) And you watch the video and there's like, there's nothing there. It's not translating. It's not coming over. So I think it's more valuable to have, you know, the original story come from people watching or scrolling on tape because what you've got on tape is what you've got. I'll let you on a little secret. DPs and directors often get that too when they're like, oh, but that shot, where's that shot? We did that shot. It's like, man, that shot don't work. Sorry to tell you. But sometimes you do have to shoehorn that stuff in and it's often, it's like, it kind of takes you out of the moment, but hey, if it If it makes you happy, what's the line from the song? If it makes you happy, it can't be that bad. But then again, perhaps, <laughs> right. perhaps it, ha- perhaps it can be. So let's talk. Let's talk a little bit technically. As zombie is cut on Avid, a lot of reality is cut on, on cut on Avid. Are you working? Jeanette's working remotely. Dan, I guess you're working remotely as well right now yes. during the the pandemic. Yeah, that that entire company on I believe every show they're doing is working remote. <laughs> What is your thoughts on, and Jeanette and I were talking about this, we should have been recording before we started recording. Mm-hmm. Dan, are you enjoying the remote side of things or did you like being in the office? Oh, I, I love working from home. I think uh, <laughs> if I never have to go back to an office again, it'll be too soon. I've got, I got phones, I've got FaceTime, like what do I need to sit? I sit in a room by myself and I edit, whether yeah. I'm at a company or I'm at home. So why not just be at home? I don't have to commute anywhere. You know, yeah. I can go make myself lunch when I want to eat. Like that's huge. You know, As you don't get your work done. That's, that's, yep. it, it's great to be able to just work from home. And, uh, so when, when, is, when the, an episode is, is shot, that's going back to the post house and being media managed. Are you, are you guys getting bins sent to you with these, with these string outs or, you know, the, if you have an hour long show that's you know forty some odd minutes when it when it airs, are you are you assigned a particular piece of the story, or are you assigned an entire episode? Or Jeanette, I'll go to you on that one. How how is the work first divided up for a show like Zombie? Well, on on Zombie in particular, we kind of we start out with dedicated episodes. Dan and I hand off back and forth. Who's got? I would, for lack of a better word, call it lead duties on a particular episode. But with a show like Zombie, you're married to the progress of the house. So, for example, I finished off my first episode because it was shot almost entirely when I started editing. They only had to do the final walkthrough and the house was done. So that was just a a scheduling issue and they shot it and I was able to complete the episode. My second house, I think they've gotten halfway through the construction and they've come to a screeching halt. So on just in the nature of the house flipping and the nature of the construction and the crews and whatever the hangup is, the construction hasn't progressed. So the episode hasn't progressed. So I've, you know, in that downtime, I've helped down out with one of his episodes. I've moved on to a third episode and I've started the first couple of acts work worth of work on that. And Dan's going to pile onto my episodes when, you know, when, when something, when he's come to a, halt on his progress. He helps me out with my episodes. And we all just kind of tag team on a show like Zombie. 
And it's easy with their setup. Pilgrim is using Jump Desktop. So, and this is crazy to me. <clears throat> We're actually logging in and working off of the Avid that's in the edit rooms down at the office building in North Hollywood. Good old Jump. Um, yeah, Jump's an amazing thing. It's been fantastic. So I can jump onto Dan's episode and he can jump onto my stuff. When I was working on Intervention, which is the only other show I've worked on during the pandemic, it was I had a, a drive here at the house and had all the media and I was able to send cuts to them and they could read my bins, but we couldn't read each other's media. So that was very dedicated. I had that episode and that's all I worked on. As far as the business in its entirety, it very much depends on the show, whether you've got a dedicated episode or whether everybody just kind of takes a scene and, and runs with it. it. I think when the pandemic began, it was shipping hard drives or go come pick up this raid and take it to your house. Yeah. But as we've yeah. been in it for longer periods of time, I'm really surprised to see the number of people that are, that are using Jump because I think before there's a feature jump implemented that where the audio latency was finally good enough, you could actually play back and edit and hear the audio from. Like that wasn't always possible with jump, but once they implemented that feature, then the, and I've done the same thing at my office. I'll have that machine run in and I'll just jump in there and have it do something. Yeah. Then I'll come back and keep working here at the house <laughs> on a whole different job. So Dan, let's say you've got a show that's been shot. It's gone through the story producers. Have they sort of strung out an entire, have they built the whole episode or written it kind of by acts or they just have one super long story and it's up to you to chop it into acts what are you seeing in your avid to, to begin work on a, on a new episode they start by doing like a spreadsheet grid of the the episode so it's six acts and it's like broken down basically like scene cards and what they string is the scenes since Jeanette and I are basically the leads on our episodes we are solely responsible for acts one and six of our episodes and then whatever else we have time for and then we each have two editors working with us those other two editors tackle like all of the scenes in between acts one and six let me ask stop you for a second would, would those be considered like easier and acts one and six are the most important because that's the intro the show and the big payoff why is that structured that way one and six are the most highly stylized parts of okay. the show. And when you say got, stylized, yeah. are, are you talking about, you know, just because you're doing flashbacks and you've got some- Yeah, you know, music Morris effects, effects, all okay. of that. So okay. like, you know, one is always the initial walkthrough of the zombie house. So kind of setting that tone is key to, you know, making the episode work. Like, how horrible is this house? And you really sell it with, you know, their reactions, with music, with sound effects, with kind of- some wild cutting here and there, some montages of like, I've seriously, I've seen some of the most disgusting houses I've ever <laughs> seen in my life working on this show. A lot of the zombies are like abandoned or people have been evicted, but they were evicted several years ago. Mm -hmm. And, you know, all their stuff is still there, including a refrigerator full of food. <laughs> from, three years ago or whatever like it's gross and then six obviously it's the big reveal so you've got like all the finished work plus flashbacks to what it used to look like so that's why the lead editors on the episodes handle those ones and not the other editors they mostly focus on you know all of the transformation stuff that happens um basically from demo 
right up to the end of the flip. And then, you know, as like, say I get done with the initial walkthrough and the house actually isn't finished because more often than not, we're, we try to start editing these things as quickly as we can. So that means a lot of times we're cutting while the house is still under construction. So if that's the case, you know, you get done with your act one and then it's just like, hey, what scenes still need to be cut, you know, for the body of the show? We'll jump on whatever we can. As soon as all the, you know, final stuff is in, we shift our focus to act six. And then once the whole show is like done, you know, I'll take and assemble my whole episode out. Jeanette will take and assemble her whole episode out. And at that point, you know, it's like, She's responsible for all the notes on hers. I'm responsible for all the notes on mine. Obviously, with some crossover, I've also had to do a few like housekeeping things and work on a new show open. So Jeanette has taken notes passes on my episodes. I'm sure I'll take some on hers at some point. Let's, I want to get to notes in a second, but I'm going to gently throw this one to you. How much, because you mentioned the like the open, the first act that has a lot of stylistic stuff. You got lots of music cuts. You've, how much sort of like a visual effects stuff are you doing? So I think people often wonder, you know, being these shows are cut on Avid. You know, Avid isn't known for its high end effects, but yet yeah. there's a lot of effects that go into a lot of these types of shows and they're all cut and you're, like you're not going into you know, sort of after effects to finish the whole show. You're doing a lot of this work in Avid. Talk a little bit about sort of the, you know, cutting all these different music tracks and, and what you have to do to kind of style, to stylize the show itself. We're in our fourth season. So it's something that's sort of organically progressed over the last couple of years. Uh, I say we're in our fourth season, but the show's been running for like eight or something like that. Because um, wow. again, because of the delays with the house construction, it takes a long time to get a season out. But it's I wouldn't say it's very visually graphics heavy you know we we do a lot of speed ramps and you know a lot of whooshing of the house you know you start with a slow pan and then you zoom across to the other end of the house and put a whoosh sound effect underneath that we do some desaturation especially in act six when we're showing the before and afters of the reveals like remember how this living room used to look and we desaturate the image from what it was in act one just to make it look a little creepy and to make the reveal of uh, the transformed room a little more eye-popping, a little more attractive. But other than that, I wouldn't say we're very graphics heavy. I mean, a, a lot of our flash comes from the music, very much drives the mood of the piece, the mood of the scene. Um, we kind of run the gamut emotionally from, like you say, the horror music when, when they do the walkthrough to act six when everything is bright and beautiful and it's happy and it's upbeat and it's triumphant music. And we get silly in, in some of the scenes in the body of the show. And, you know, that's a lot more lighthearted. But then when the crew runs up against a real obstacle, we'll play the dramatic strings and reality music and really try to enhance what the crew is experiencing at any point in time. And then, of course, the process beats. That's the most fun for me. The process beats are when we say, we ripped out this entire bathroom and installed this great, beautiful tile. And they shoot time lapses for those. And those are fun to play with speed ramps. And you literally see the wall 
whoosh up. You know, we try to make the tile go from the bottom to the top in a second, whoosh. And you instantly see that transformation in the tile or the, you know, if they're staining the floor or painting the rooms and a lot of flashy cutting, a lot of, you know, hammer sound effects and drills and saws. Mm -hmm. I, I, I think we rely more heavily on just old fashioned good editing to get those, all of those vibes across. We don't yeah, so use a whole lot of graphic inter interface. You said being in the fourth season, I guess you probably have a, a two sort of a toolbox that's been created where you can go back to some of those graphic and you know stylistic oh, yeah. things and, and toss in. But now talk about like music and sound for a second, because that's a really important part of, of the show and, and a lot of unscripted stuff because the music can drive the mood. Are are you guys, are you cutting your own music? Does it go out to the sound design for all of the sound effects? Do you build all this yourself? Can you just sort of half half-ass you know, your music edits no, and, let, no. and let a music editor figure that out later. We are DIY, baby. We do all the music. <laughs> we do all the sound effects. DIY we, for the FYI, FYI network. That's right. That's well, right. A&E we, now. Let's, let's get that right. That's right. Ah. That's right. We grew up. They bumped it over to A&E. FYI is, I can't get FYI or couldn't get it because it was in like the top tier of, of Comcast in mm. my market and we don't have that that top tier. So I would I've caught it on on YouTube and on some of the on demand. But anyway, yeah. So you're doing all that stuff yourself. You don't have the luxury of, of passing of passing that off. No. No. Are there God, wouldn't that be lovely? <laughs> people exist in reality TV? Like I I've always Not had reality. to cut my own music and sound effects. That's an interesting question. I do know a few sound mixers who do, uh, you know, a fair share of reality, and I've heard them, you know, say, "We fix your music edits all the time because they're not they're not right or something <laughs> yeah. like that." I'm and, a drummer. Um, I'd be insulted if they said that about my well, music yeah, me edits. Too. Drummers me too. are drummers are the best music editors. You guys can hear some of those beats. Where I'm like, no one's ever going to hear that. I'm like, I hear it. I'm a drummer. You know, says the producer. I'm like, all right, fine, we'll fix it. <laughs> what uh, does Zombie have a finishing editor who then who will take it to do the final color and do and literally do all the you know final finishing for broadcast or are you guys doing that right out yourself if you're the lead on the show no it goes to online we do all of the like getting it to time zeroing everything out but then it goes to online and they do all of the color we actually work in standard def at 10 to 1 after us it gets up res to hd and then finished by our online team like we have in-house sound and online so all of that is done within the pilgrim ecosystem and they have really great people that you know do this on all of their various shows and they always do a fantastic job you're getting a full-on broadcast mix they're just not going back and doing sound design and redoing your your music and stuff correct like yeah, yeah. Gotcha. i got you so the 10 to 1 standard f is that a is that because there's so much footage or is that because it streams better over over jump or it's partly because of the amount of footage it is also because pilgrim is one of the bigger reality producers in la and they generally have a lot of shows going pre-pandemic when that building was full there could easily be a hundred editors working there on any given day you know, and that's just editors. Then you've got like story and all the assistant editors. It's a big place, you know, four yeah. floors of a big building in North Hollywood. It, it can yeah. fill up. So I think that's why all these shows tend to cut it 10 to 1 M, not just 10 to 1, 10 to 1 M. Wow. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, I, I don't know about um, the actual aspect ratio, the 10 to 1, that's all technical jargon that 
doesn't sit in my brain. But every show I've worked on has always been low res for offline editing to save storage space, whether it's a huge company like Pilgrim or a one-off, you know, a boutique where they're only wanting running one show. You want to economize as much as you can. So you get only one drive to hold all your footage versus 10 at high res. So that's just part of the beast. And sometimes it can trip you up if you don't think somebody's speaking in low res, but when they up, when they up res the footage for online, it's like, yeah, you've got massive lip flap in the scene we had to recut. Oh yeah. You know, that's a problem, but I've always edited on low res. The, the other fun thing is the like, did you know this shot's out of focus the whole time? <laughs> oh, yeah. No. Lots of that. No, I, there's one. no way you could tell. Lots of that, yep. I've been at places, though, where they're like working 14 to 1, and you really cannot tell if things are in focus. That's, that is really, really tricky because you're right. And that was in right. 2019. So, <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's, that's always it's crazy. Going. I remember on uh, music videos years ago, uh, years years ago, and uh, you know AVR three resolution, and and you'd have to uh, like wide shots, you'd have to go and up res it just to make sure that they're in sync when they're singing. And, and mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a perfect shot, but we can't tell if the lips are in yeah. sync. And um, right. yeah, I thought all that was kind of a thing of the past, but working at those resolutions, yeah. How often will they let something like a soft shot slide, or is that is that like no, it's got to be in solid focus. If it's not, then it gets cut from the show. I would think it would depend on each individual situation and how long the shot is up and how crucial it is. If it's, yeah. you know, a look that you're going for, if it resolves, then you can get away with it. I feel like on Zombie I've never had anyone come back and say, "Hey, this shot's bad, we need to replace it." That definitely had happened working on Ghost Hunters, which is also a pilgrim show. <laughs> That's probably a lot of stuff at night, I'm going to guess. It's a lot of darkness. A lot of darkness. It's all shot. Well, most of it is shot in infrared as well. So, you know. Don't focus in there. It could be soft as can be. Right, right. Sharpen it up. You'd be good to go. It's not that stuff. It's the daytime shots where where it's like pre-investigation, where it's like, oh, this entire thing is out of focus. We need to redo this. Would you guys say, since you've worked on some really different styles or different sort of, you know, subgenres of unscripted stuff, do you feel like ultimately, whether it's a uh, ghost show or a a catching fish show or a cutting timber show or rebuilding a house show, is it sort of... Do you kind of feel like it's the same? You're just telling you're just telling a different kind of story, or are there literal like I don't know, almost guttural differences between this show that I'm working on and this totally different show that I'm working on? Do you have to like I need a week off between these two shows because they're so different? And maybe Jeanette, you can go with that one. Is is it or is it just you know what I'm a storyteller? I can pivot you know with the best of them. I'm pretty much in in the pivot field. Sometimes you don't have the luxury of a week off in between shows to recalibrate. But I like, for me, every show I work on, I try to make it a little bit different. I try to make it in league with what the subject is. You know, so when I'm cutting intervention, I, I let the shots sit a little longer. I try to be with that person in the moment. I'm not so snappy with the interviews. You know, if they say something emotional, I like to sit with them for a moment before I cut off onto something else versus zombie, which is snap, 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 move, move, yeah. move, move, energy. Let's keep it rolling. Let's keep it energetic. And it's the shifting back and forth between those styles that 
is why I do what I do. Even in my like dream job for a time I was working for VH1 on a show called The List and I was making packages. It was like a politically incorrect, but for music. So they would have a topic that they had celebrities argue over, the best male singer. And my job was to cut a package, a one minute package of, you know, male singers throughout the years. Mm -hmm. You know, who's a Mick Jagger, Roger Daltrey, you know, Bruno Mars, all these people. And I was a pig in shit cutting that, you know, watching music videos and cutting music and stylized and graphics and all that good fun stuff. And I got bored with it after two months. It's like, okay, well, I've done this. Let's do something else. So then I shift back on to something that's a little more heavily narrative. And I don't feel like I need to shift gears mentally for that because that mood, that vibe should be there in the material. It should be there in the footage. It should be there in the story that I'm given from the story producer. So I find I'm able to just kind of hook into the story itself and how it needs to be told by what's there in front of me. That's great. I, lo- I, I love that answer because I think many of us that have been in post-production editing, especially craft editing uh, for a really long time, it is all about just finding finding the, the, cool, the cool story. Dan, yeah. I'll toss a question out at you here. We're kind of sort of starting to wrap this up. You know, what... What in the process of some of these unscripted stuff or just unscripted post-production in general, what in the process, because you've done it for a while now, what would you like to see change? Any things that stick out to you on uh, just the unscripted world in general that you think that you don't, that you don't like, that you'd like to see fixed I mean, or? Yeah, I think the, the biggest thing, and it's, yeah, it's not going to change is I always wish I had more time, you know? Yeah. And that's just, it's not the case. Because you can deliver a show in the ridiculous schedule they gave you, and you do it all the time, they're like, oh, you don't really need that much time. We're cutting it by five more days. Uh And I feel like that's just the direction everything's going to keep going, where we'll get to a point where you can just barely get a show out, and that's where everyone, you know, who makes the big bucks will be satisfied with the schedules. Time, that's the thing. I always want more time. I I will say uh, working on Jump, I do miss having a real client monitor. I mean, I got one sitting right here and it's been black for (laughs) the last 18 months. Well, that's tricky. That I miss. Other than those things, I like what I'm doing. I like, you know, how everything's going right now. I mean, those are good points. And, and when you talk about, you know, time, the time factor, I mean, we never truly finish anything. You just kind of, you, you kind of wrap it up and you move on to the next thing. But I kind of feel like, you know, we're 50 minutes in. So maybe a lot of people have tuned out or some people who get mad when I say this, but it feels like that editing documentary, unscripted, st- real type of stuff is more difficult than scripted stuff. Because while scripted can be very difficult, you have you know a, a multitude of different ways you can cut any one scene. It is still scripted. There is a roadmap that you began with. Whereas with doc mm-hmm. and unscripted stuff, they're often you know there may be a roadmap, but it is a way different roadmap than you have when it's scripted. And that roadmap can sometimes just get you know it can get burned there and right. there in the process. So I mean I don't want to say it's you know it's it's more difficult, but it's just a whole different beast. And I think if you ever needed more time, it would be in doc style unscripted stuff because you know you always can go and you may not have a story. But yet you still have to craft a story, even when there's yeah. no story there, which is its own world of discussion. Right. Yeah. I mean, I do think true. like with with docs, 
you don't always have those kind of false time constraints that you do with reality TV because most docs, it's like it's the director's project and they haven't necessarily pre-sold it. What you have there is a, a lack of funds. So, uh, yes. you know, unless you're like best friends with the director, you're not going to want to work on something indefinitely for no money and the promise of money oh, when yes. this thing sells <laughs> because they never did their docs. Unless yeah. you're like Michael Moore or Morgan Spurlock, you're not getting a ton of money for your doc when you sell it. You're like lucky to recoup your costs. Yep. So, well, it, speaking of uh, speaking of docs, Dan, you you've got a couple of Nashville kind of connections on documentaries because you uh, you did a recent documentary, "Can You Hear My Voice," that showed at the Nashville uh, Film Festival. Yes. And I think, if I remember correctly, years ago you worked on a doc about tattoo removal. You remember yeah. the name of it? But it was. But uh, didn't didn't they have to do that through like Vanderbilt? That one was Erasing Hate. Erasing Hate. Uh, a former neo-Nazi who was going through the process of having his facial tattoos removed. And yeah, it was done at Vanderbilt. I want to say he went through like 20 to 30 tattoo removal sessions. They were wow. excruciating to watch. Wow. You know, just the injections of all of the like numbing agents followed by a couple, you know, hours of laser sessions and yeah, it it was it was tough, but it's like it's the kind of story that has to be told. Yeah. I mean, I even remember on that there was because MSNBC had funded it, there was a battle between the network and the director over the runtime and you know, it was like this thing needs to be a full feature and MSNBC wanted an hour doc. So I think in the end they agreed that like they'd run an hour long version on TV and you know, for festivals and whatever, we had a full feature version of it, which was vastly superior to what ran on MSNBC. But yeah, you know, that one was interesting. And then Can You Hear My Voice? That's the most recent one that I did. And it follows a choir of uh, laryngectomy, like cancer survivors who've all had laryngectomies based in the UK. And the director, same director as Erasing Hate, the reason this was such an important project to him is that he is a cancer survivor and he also had a laryngectomy. Oh, wow. And finding this story was kind of a way for him to, you know, deal with the trauma of having a laryngectomy and, and learning to be, you know, okay with that in the world again. And, you know, people look at someone with a stoma and they're like, oh, that thing in your neck, I, I don't, it's gross or whatever. And it's like, it's not, it's, they survived cancer. You know, this has given them a way to speak again because they literally don't have vocal cords anymore. And it's just a really amazing story. And he is a part of the story as well. And I think it's an important film that I hope, you know, people can somehow track down <laughs> and see it if they can. Uh, I think he's still working on distribution for it, but it's still making festival rounds. I think it won one of our, you know, the Nashville Film Festival. Their real emphasis on music documentaries and 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 sort of any sort of like oral based kind of stories. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I mean, that's one of the great things about docs is is they're you know they're real real stories and, and unscripted is even though you know it's it's manipulated as you're telling it, they are still 
real stories. And I think, I think people really connect with real stories and uh, thankfully they have got us through some of the pandemic. Remember Tiger King, Tiger King got a lot of people <laughs> through. Um, that was a, that was a real story. Well, hey, uh, Jeanette, Dan, thanks for joining us here. I appreciate the chat on zombie house flipping and just, you know, unscripted uh, documentary and just that world that you, uh, that you two are doing post-production in. So I wish you continued uh, success and hopefully um, more cool shows to come down the, uh, come down the pipe. Thank, Thank you. you very much. Thank you for having us. Yes, this was fun.